Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Democratic leaders in the Connecticut General Assembly say they'll have a budget deal with Governor Lamont before the legislative session ends. But they'll need to reach agreement on some proposals that Lamont has said he doesn't support, like tax hikes on the wealthy. Could minority Republicans play a role? Today, where we live, we talk to the number two Republican in the state Senate, Senator Paul Formica. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Senator Paul Formica joins us again on Zoom. He's the Senate Republican leader pro tem, representing the 20th district that's made up of several towns, including East Lyme, Old Saybrook, and the city of New London. Senator Formica, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Now, I understand, are you in your third term, Senator Formica? I am in my fourth term. Fourth term. And you are a longtime business owner of Flanders Fish Market and Restaurant in East Lyme. How's that been going for you in this last year? You know, uh, the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, as as everyone knows by now, suffered, you know, uh, greatly during the last year in the pandemic with nearly 800 restaurants closing across the state. Um, you know, we were able to hang in there. This is our 38th year of operation. And I got to tell you, I got the greatest staff in the business who, uh, you know, really came together and, and worked hard to make sure that we did all of the things we needed to do to stay safe for them and for our customers. Uh, and, uh, you know, it seems to have paying dividend as we as we come out of this uh, this long time pandemic. Now, on top of that, you again are been representing the 20th district for some time. You were with the state Senate last night, uh, several proposals moving through, including expansion of, of online gambling and sports betting in our state. But I wanted to get reaction from you first, because there is a, a colleague in the state Senate, Senator Dennis Bradley, who's been indicted on federal campaign finance charges. He's accused of having his campaign workers alter the dates on campaign contribution cards ahead of the 2018 election, and those altered contribution cards were later sent to the State Elections Enforcement Commission in an effort to qualify Senator Bradley for tens of thousands of dollars in state campaign money. Now, Democratic leaders of the state Senate have removed him from his post as chairman of the Public Safety Committee. I wanted you to respond to when you heard the news and how serious are these allegations, Senator? Well, certainly the allegations are serious. And, uh, you know, Senator Bradley has... uh, know uh, a lot to deal with moving forward um certainly i'd like to see the process play out uh, before i comment on um, the situation as i really don't know the details other than you know what we heard uh, sketches of last night and the reaction by the leadership of the senate democrats Um, and that's where we are now and and now i guess it's up to 
uh, Senator Bradley in the courts to kind of work out a solution and, you know, um, have to see if he can move forward. When you think about uh, how this all panned out, the fact that we've got the citizens election program, uh, the importance of clean elections, and while he received one of the grants, uh, there was a citizen complaint, and uh, the commission ended up not even giving him a second election grant. Do you think that the protections in this program are working, Senator? Well, I think it's a it's a great program. I think, um, you know, it definitely needs some tweaks uh, here and there, but certainly it's a great program. And I think if uh, if and then I again, I don't know the details of Senator Bradley's situation, but if they uh, meaning the, the the commission were uh, looking into it and, and they seem to have uncovered some wrongdoing and, and they seem to have taken proper steps and uh, taking their time uh, to make a decision, because um, I understand this was some time ago. Um, so then I guess the, 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 I guess the program is working, and I think the program has allowed uh, a lot of people to participate uh, in, in state elections where perhaps they would not have been able to raise the funds necessary to do so, and it's, it's leveled the playing field. And uh, it's a program that I've used since... You know, I, I ran for Senate first in 2014, November election. So, um, you know, I think we let the situation play out and, and uh, see what the commission comes up with. I mentioned uh, the Senate met last night and sports betting online gambling is moving forward to the governor's desk. Uh, Senator Bradley was, uh, I believe, the chair of the uh, Senate Public Safety and Security Committee. So one of the committees that was handling this uh, gambling expansion bill. Did his arrest have any impact on the debate for that measure last night? Well, you know, the Public Safety Committee has been the Committee of Cognizance over uh, conversation with gaming and uh, with the change in leadership, um, you know, this year with uh, two new chairs, with uh, Senator Bradley and, and Representative Horn, you know, the, the Safety Committee took a little bit of a different direction toward online gaming. And, you know, I think we saw the results of that last night. Um, you know, fittingly, uh, Senator uh, Kathy Austin uh, from Sprague, uh, who was a uh, co-chair of, of that Public Safety Committee, was named chairman of the committee and so she brought the bill out and i say fittingly because no one has worked harder on this issue uh in in moving uh online gaming and sports betting uh and that bill forward uh than kathy austin uh this the southeastern delegation were united uh we worked hard together because we understand the impact of uh, to eastern connecticut specifically because of the jobs and uh, and the importance of uh, the success of, you know, the two largest uh, tribal casino resorts in the world. And and so Senator Austin, I thought, did a great job uh, standing in and presenting the, the bill. And I think it made uh, the, you know, made the presentation of the legislation a lot, uh, a lot easier with the absence of the chair. So talk through more of the benefits, obviously helping jobs, especially in the, the eastern part of our state. But when we think about the projected revenue and taxes from sports betting and online gambling, talk more about why this is needed in our state, Senator Formica. Well, it's, uh, you know, online gaming is not new. It's new to Connecticut now, but it's not new. Uh, states surrounding us have uh, generated significant revenue. 
from online gaming and, and sports betting after the decision some years ago to, uh, you know, uh, by the federal courts to allow that to move forward. So, um, you know, especially given the fact that we have um, kind of a unique situation with gambling here in Connecticut uh, as it's governed and by the compacts that, you know, then Governor Weicker signed 30 years ago or so uh, with uh, Foxwoods and then modified with the Mohegan tribe. So they've grown into the five and six uh, highest job producers in the state. Uh, their philanthropic um, uh, initiatives are legendary. They, they support the community. Uh, they are part of the community and they do so much for, uh, you know, for drawing traffic uh, in the hospitality industry. And that's lifted up not only Eastern and Southeastern Connecticut, but I think it's lifted up Connecticut as a destination. And we have so much to offer here uh, as far as tourism and arts and culture. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, really the signature plum of, of the state that, you know, attracts people and attracts hundreds of thousands of people when, you know, pandemic aside, uh, we hope that that's going to continue. Uh, mm. And how soon will we see, how soon, uh, Senator Formica, it looks like you're getting a notification on your computer, if you could mute that. How soon will the, the state be seeing uh, sports betting uh, in Connecticut? Uh, what needs to happen before the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs? Well, the governor needs to, to sign the legislation, and uh, uh, then it will go down uh, to the feds for their uh, approval. But I'm sure that they've been in contact uh, with the negotiations all along. So hopefully that will <clears throat> excuse me, and hopefully that will just be, um, you know, something that will happen very quickly. Uh, and then, you know, the implementation process, the mechanics of actually getting, uh, you know, the hardware and the software and all of that set up so that it can be, uh, you know, that can be implemented. And, and you know, it could be midsummer or the fall and uh, before it starts generating. And, I think it's going to generate significant revenue to the state, uh, but it's also going to shore up the tribes uh, and, and uh, you know, secure those jobs there. So um, hopefully in the next few months, we'll get a we'll get a better understanding. But, you know, there's been a lot of background work done um, by the everybody involved. And, you know, the governor and his team stepped in and kind of, you know, closed the loop with the negotiations. And, you know, so there's a lot of uh, kudos to go around uh, because people came together and gave a little and, and uh, you know, the agreement, I think, is beneficial long term. And, you know, we kind of alluded to earlier before, you know, we came on air, the, you know, the some of the societal issues that may come from this. And, you know, many senators in around the circle last night spoke about you know, uh, problem gambling and the resources that uh, could be used to, from this bill and from this legislation, you know, to shore up uh, dollars to that area. And this legislation provides that the tribe must, each tribe must add $500,000 annually to that uh, initiative. And uh, the Connecticut lottery, uh, you know, goes up to 3 million. So, um, Hopefully that we can, you know, as we move forward in one side of the issue, we can move forward with the other side. Uh, Senator Wong spoke eloquently last night about 
a study on problem gambling that was supposed to have been updated and has not been since 2008. Uh, you know, I think we should update that and see where we are and get a good starting point so we have a good baseline uh, as this process moves forward and and then find ways to take the necessary steps to protect, uh, you know, the people in, that are going to be utilizing this this service. But the tribe has a 30-year track record of, of working with that. So, you know, I'm hopeful that it's, it's going to move forward uh, smoothly. You're hearing State Senate Republican Leader Pro Tem Paul Formica here on the show representing the 20th District. That's several towns, including East Lyme and Old Saybrook and the city of New London. If you have a question for Senator Formica, especially about uh, how uh, the gambling expansion will proceed in our state, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I believe Senator Kevin Whitcoast out of Canton said the restrictions on referees, coaches, and other participants in sports from wagering were insufficient. Can you talk about that concern? Well, I think Senator Whitcoast brought up a good point that, um, uh, you know, there should be, you know, certain people excluded from um, using this service. Um, You know, it happens in other states. And um, I think that could be some of the fine tuning uh, that we see moving down uh, down the road. Um, You know, there is, I think, a prohibition on uh, Connecticut sports teams. Um, So, you know, Senator Whitcoast raised a good point, and and you don't want people involved, uh, especially with you know, uh, you know, college athletics, uh, you know, to try to be tempted, if you will, to do the wrong thing here. So uh, I thought Senator Whitcoast brought up a good point, and it's probably something as we move forward uh, that might be one of the tweaks in the legislation as we see, because you know that's what happens, frankly, in a lot of legislation. You you. You know, you pass it initially, it moves through uh, the General Assembly. There may be an amendment on it here or there, uh, but then it becomes law. And then, you know, the following session, you know, we should be evaluating such uh, policies such as these and and kind of, you know, tweaking them to make sure that they're better. And, and uh, you know, I thought the points by Senators Wong and Flexer and, and uh, Whitcoast made some good sense last night. Let's talk about the budget. Again, legislative session ending June 9th, not too many days uh, to hammer out a a two-year budget deal, but we hear uh, Democratic leaders in the General Assembly say they're negotiating with uh, the governor's administration. I'm wondering uh, in terms of the input that uh, Republicans have in this process, Senator Formica, is it business as usual because Republicans are a minority party in our state that you are shut out of this process? You know, we have been uh, shut out in, in, the, in the, the fine-tuning conversation of the budget, if you will. I'll put it that way. I know we have a, a great ranking member on appropriations and Senator Minor and a strong r- ranking member on the Finance and Bonding Committee and Senator Martin, uh, who have been involved in the committee process. But beyond that, you know, we've not been involved. And, you know, a lot of what we talk about go back to a few years ago when you know, you all remember we were 1818 in the Senate and the historic bipartisan budget, um, you know, was developed. You know, I remember as co-chair of the Appropriation Committee, along with Senator Austin, uh, sitting down across the table and going through, you know, 1,500 line items one at a time. It took us about three days to do it. Uh, and we came up with a budget together that had 
spending controls, uh, borrowing controls, and the volatility cap, which is the brainchild of Senator Fonfara uh, and quickly embraced by um, most everybody on the committee. And, and that's what has put us in the strong position we are today. So, you know, it's our contention that Republicans have good ideas. It's uh, equal government. Uh, sharing of ideas certainly pays dividends when it comes to developing a budget. And we see that in the numbers that are coming out now with, you know, federal money aside, um, you know, we're doing much better than uh, than anticipated coming out of the pandemic. So hasn't in past years, haven't uh, your party uh, put out its own taxing and spending plan? Has that happened recently? We did. We put out probably close to eight or nine budgets um, up and through and including the 2018 uh, budget. But, the, you know, the budget that we did bipartisanly was really the only one that, you know, we were able to be taken seriously with. And uh, we were quickly dismissed on many of the budget ideas that uh, we went through. So uh, it, it didn't seem to make sense to go through that. We have uh, a great a young um, budget analysis joining our team this year. And, you know, we're looking at the numbers. Uh, you know, we will have some suggestions moving forward um, on, uh, you know, on the budget and, um, and, and we'll see where that goes. But, uh, you know, this budget, you know, is I expect to come out in the next, probably next week uh, and it'll be voted on. And hopefully, you know, the tax increases that have been talked about, I think there's 3.2 billion in, in projected tax increases, uh, along with, you know, a large amount of federal dollars. Uh, you know, hopefully the tax increases will go away as there seems to be pushback now on um, from both parties, especially as, uh, you know, the picture gets a little bit rosier. The, the budget surplus is now almost 600 million. Uh, and we're able to put over a billion dollars in that volatility cap. And, um, you know, I think you know how that works. Uh, anything over 15% uh, of the budget that is saved in the budget reserve fund must be taken out and put down to pay back uh, pension liability. And the benefits of paying pension liability, obviously, is a reduction in debt but also a reduction in debt service, which helps, uh, you know, the general fund expenditure line item side of the budget. You mentioned that you think some of the tax hikes will go away because there's been pushback. Is that something that you think is probable because Governor Lamont doesn't support it, Senator Formica, this idea of shifting some of the tax burdens uh, off of the middle class onto the rich? Well, Governor Lamont has stood strong on um, um, protecting the rich from uh, getting more tax increases. Uh, you know, he has a number of tax increases in his budget with the $50 million insurance tax and, uh, you know, the TCI tax, which is, uh, you know, an unproven, you know, opportunity, I'll say, uh, but it will raise some money, about $100 million. The mileage tax on trucks is another $100 million. So, you know, the governor has put his finger on some tax increases, but, but you're right. He, he says that, and I think rightly so, um, you know, taxing the rich has proven not to be a good, um, a good philosophy on, on budget 
tax generation because they simply can move. And the more mobile the economy becomes, the more likely and the, and the more apt they are to move. That goes back to when Kevin Sullivan was, you know, a former lieutenant governor and president of the Senate. When he was commissioner of revenue services, he spent a lot of time talking to the appropriations committee. I was a member back then about the work that he did tracking the, 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 the high earners and the amount of taxes that they paid and the percentage. So um, I think it's important. There needs a balance. There needs to be a balance. And one of the things that I really think we should take the time to do is instead of throwing, uh, you know, uh, tax possibilities at specific sectors, I think it's time to get a bipartisan committee of the legislature together and really look at redoing the tax code, you know, top to bottom. I, I think uh, it needs to be more fair. Uh, certainly, you know, things can change and, and, and there can be some tweaks. Um, but I think, uh, I think that's something that really needs to be done and do an overall um, tax overhaul uh, instead of just saying, let's tax this and let's tax that. Let's talk more about this after the break. My guest today is State Senate Republican Leader Pro Tem Paul Formica. He represents the 20th Senatorial District. If he's your state senator, you can join us. If you have a question for him, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today, State Senate Republican Leader Pro Tem Paul Formica. He represents the 20th Senatorial District. You can join us if you have a question for him, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, before the break, Senator, you mentioned TCI. That's the Transportation Climate Initiative. Uh, again, the Democrats want to include this in the state budget. The initiative still has 
to be figured out completely, but generally it would set a cap on air pollution caused by transportation fuels, then allow for the sale of credits above that cap, and that would create a financial incentive for companies to reduce the pollution. You are a, you live on the shore, you represent towns on the shore, certainly a lot of your residents concerned about how climate is impacting extreme weather, especially on the shoreline. So what are some of your issues with the Transportation Climate Initiative? Well, you know, I think it should be a broader program if it's going to work. Um, you know, here specifically in the state of Connecticut, there's news out of Rhode Island this morning that, you know, it's having trouble there because, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be uh, able to uh, produce what it's what it's talked about producing in terms of air quality. You know, our air moves from west to east uh, and, you know, some of the, the problems that are generated in our air quality come from, you know, places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York. And, you know, those states are not involved in this program. Uh, it was supposed to be 13 states involved in New England. And, you know, it's, it's now down to three in the District of, of Columbia. And, and I think that, you know, we really need to have a federally based supported program if we're going to talk about clean air quality because uh, if we're doing that here in Connecticut we're just going to really affect the Atlantic Ocean uh, as the winds move things uh, you know to the east. Uh, additionally it's a hundred million dollar tax. Um, it's designed as a transportation tax and you know you may remember a few years ago when you know there was talk of uh, how to fund transportation uh, and the lockbox was created. Um, you know, here we are, the first major piece of legislation coming out of this administration uh, with regard to taxing uh, transportation initiatives, and it's exempt and set outside, you know, the controls of that lockbox, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, so I think there are better ways to move forward. Uh, I think uh, I'd like to have Governor Lamont and uh, work with the Biden administration to try to, you know, get a broader base of uh, states involved in this if we're going to do something like it. And I'm not adverse to looking at those solutions. Uh, but for right now, this thing that's on the table, the reason that it's going into the budget is because uh, I don't believe they can get a bill passed through the General Assembly, um, even though they hold such a large majority. So, you know, I think there are problems with the idea. Um, we certainly remember last year all the talk about the need for repair of our roads and bridges, the, the tail end of the toll conversation. You know, we've not heard that this year. Um, so there's been focus on other issues. So we definitely need a good, strong transportation program. How do we pay for it? Republicans put a good idea on the table a few years ago. And if you look, uh, Lucy, at the uh, um, the budget reserve fund, you know, where we suggested taking some money out of that, uh, investing it more into the pension program, taking the savings from uh, the budget debt service and investing that in transportation. If we had done that two and a half years ago, we would have saved $130 million a year and we would have uh, been able to invest that in transportation. We'd have projects going right now on our roads and bridges, and we would have recouped all of that money and been back uh, to the $3.5 billion level. So, um, you know, there's, I, I think that's indicates to me a good reason why we need to all sit together and come up with ideas that we can work together and find a meeting uh, place in the middle 
because we can't kick the can much farther down the road in terms of transportation infrastructure. We need to do some work there. Senator, you mentioned investing in roads and bridges, but what about investing in public transportation and ways to get these vehicles off the roadways that are causing our emission issue in our region with transportation uh, a big reason why uh, we need to do something related to climate change? Well, I think we're seeing that, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the auto dealers here in the state of Connecticut have gone from you know, not having any electric vehicles a few short years ago to offering 45 different models of electric vehicles. I think uh, the public is slowly beginning to embrace the idea of, of how to manage an electric vehicle without, um, you know, having a, a strong infrastructure of, uh, of electric charging stations. Uh, I know that part of the initiative, uh, I think about 30% of the initiative from the TCI was to invest in these things. Um, and, and to try to grow that program. Uh, and I think that makes sense. But, uh, you know, this program was really designed, this TCI program was designed to really eliminate, you know, fossil fuel and make it very difficult uh, for fossil fuel to, to survive, you know, 10 years from now and, and, and force everyone, um, force everyone to, you know, to move into electric vehicles when I'm, I'm not quite sure people are ready completely to do that. So uh, I think we are moving in that direction. Um, you know, I think public transportation is moving into electrification. Um, and, and uh, you know, right now, you know, we have to worry about getting people in and out of our cities because people are working from home. And, you know, our cities are gonna be in trouble with a lot of vacant uh, office buildings on top of the first floor that typically is populated by small businesses in these cities and depending on those office spaces and, you know, for their customer base. And, you know, I think those are problems that we need to discuss uh, and, and really put on the table to see how we can, how we can solve that. I think electric vehicles are going to be the wave of the future. Uh, and I th think we can see that in the fact that, as I mentioned, there are 45 models that are in showrooms across the state of Connecticut, uh, you know, this morning. You mentioned electric vehicles, but when I think about public transportation and people in cities uh, who don't want to be driving and they're thinking uh, more about, uh, you know, trains and uh, um, city buses and ways to invest in that, Senator Formica. Well, I think that, you know, you're seeing those investments. Uh, you know, Governor Lamont has talked about some investments. The delegation here in southeastern Connecticut has talked about expanding shoreline east. Uh, and, and those initiatives have to move forward. Um, you know, especially as, uh, you know, people are becoming more mobile. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, the younger folks, my kids uh, and, and that generation, you know, probably will embrace that uh, more and more as we move forward. But I think, you know, people working from home, um, you know, I think we're going to that's going to have an impact on, on how mobile people are and, and the impact on the cost of, of uh, public transportation. So. Um, there are good initiatives. Um, you know, there are different uh, fuel sources for public transportation that are uh, more environmentally friendly, and, and electrification is certainly one of them. And uh, I'm sure that that's going to happen. Um, 
Let's move on. I know uh, last week the state Senate approved a bill that declares racism a public health crisis. Uh, we know many Americans thinking of the Minneapolis man, George Floyd, who was murdered on uh, his anniversary of his death just the other day. You voted for this measure that that declares racism a public health crisis. Why did you do that? Well, listen, I, I think it's long since time that, you know, we really uh, put the issue of eliminating systematic racism in this country on the table. And I think, uh, you know, I, I would support anything uh, that we can do uh, to improve uh, social justice. Uh, you know, the bill, um, you know, did say that uh, racism is a public health crisis, uh, but it also contained, you know, a number of mechanisms uh, that would, uh, you know, collect some research and data uh, on racial bias, how it exists, how it affects the state. And I think, you know, you have to, that's one of the things that we have to do. The, you know, the, um, the, the George Floyd uh, situation and the, the murder that, that uh, he underwent very publicly, um, I think had uh, the effect on this nation in driving this conversation forward. And, and, we can't let that opportunity waste. And, and so, uh, you know, we need, this is the greatest country in the world. Um, you know, I can attest to that from where I started. Um, and here I am in the opportunity to serve Connecticut in this great way. Um, and that American dream has to be open and available to everyone, uh, you know, no matter what color. So, um, you know, I, I think, and I support anything that we can do to carry this conversation and change, uh, you know, to change that thinking so that we eliminate racism once and for all. I mean, it's, it's good to hear you say that, Senator Formica, when we think about, you know, saying you wanted to support anything, to, you would support anything to support social justice. But there's been a lot of attention, too, on systemic racism in our country. And even in our state, when we think of racism as a public health crisis, uh, this bill uh, would create a, a commission to report data back to, to lawmakers to figure out ways to impact health disparities and others that disproportionately affect uh, black and brown residents. But I wanted to point to work by another commission, the Connecticut Mirror reporting on the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, issuing a 51-page report the other day stating segregation born of zoning policies has had a particularly deadly effect during the COVID-19 pandemic, also disproportionately affecting residents of color in our state. And we look to what the State House did the other week, uh, passing zoning reform legislation that strips out or scales back many of the controversial sections that would have made it easier for more affordable housing to open up in Connecticut suburbs, in towns that you also represent, Senator Formica. So when this legislation comes before the Senate, where do you stand on zoning reform proposals and making the state affordable for everyone? You know, I'm a, a former first selectman, as you may recall, and, and we worked hard in the, in the uh, seven years that I was uh, the first selectman of East Lyme, you know, to open up opportunities for affordable housing and workforce housing. Uh, and there are ways uh, that you can do that within the community and gain support. Um, I have not looked at the language. I understand that that bill has changed significantly since it was discussed uh, some three weeks ago. Um, so I will be looking at it and see what impact it is. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But I, I also think it's important to make sure that it's practically implementable. And, and part of the problem that we have seen with 
pushing affordable housing through the state is that many of the people that uh, would qualify for affordable housing don't qualify for financing. And, and there has to be a better way. There has to be a better solution that's part and parcel of this whole conversation. Um, so again, my history is um, strong in moving affordable housing into communities, especially East Lyme. Uh, as chair of the Council of Governments, we had uh, those conversations when it was my term in that office. Uh, and I think those conversations continue and should continue, uh, but they also have to be practically implementable. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's the next step of how we move forward. And, you know, we're going to have some issues, uh, in, you know, in the cities, as I talked about before, people living and working there, that that is going to change. We need um, to encompass housing and recreation and opportunities for everybody throughout our state. Uh, and I think most communities embrace that. They just want to be able to have a say and not be dictated uh, by the by the government of the state of Connecticut and, and how those zoning changes are going to work. So, it, it, you know, it, it, it's part of the conversation that's evolving. And it's a good thing that we're talking about these things here in the state of Connecticut because, you know, um, that's how things are going to improve. If we don't talk about it, if we don't come together and debate it, uh, honestly and, and vigorously, um, you know, then solutions are, are not going to come forward as fast as they should. This is a conversation that's been happening for some time. This is, I think, the, the first time we've seen uh, such a uh, an effort uh, to get lawmakers to look at zoning reform. But when I look at these bills, they don't really take away control from planning and zoning, but they're trying to compel towns to do more to offer multifamily housing or accessory dwelling units in particular communities. And there just seems to be such a backlash because we know we're, we are a state of steady habits. So we can talk about having conversations, Senator, but when will there actually be movement to help people in our state? Well, I think, you know, you go back to when I was first like, when I've been a senator, it's my seventh year. So it was before that. You know, there were um, opportunities that we put forward for incentive housing zones, for example, which increased uh, the, uh, the designation of the amount of uh, housing that you can put on a parcel uh, in return for, uh, you know, benefits to the developer and the, and the community. And we put a number of those in place in downtown Niantic and in our zoning. Uh, you know, so the conversations have been, you know, have been around for a while. We just need to make sure that, you know, they're implemented and they have to move forward. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we also have to make sure that people have the opportunity uh, to practically be able to afford to do that and to live there. And, uh, you know, having, you know, a multifamily home in East Lyme or, you know, Sprague is, is one thing. You know, I think uh, we should look at the opportunity to uh, not confine this debate to deed-restricted housing. I mean, there, there is plenty of affordable housing in places in, you know, northeastern Connecticut, northwestern uh, Connecticut, around East Lyme and in central uh, southeastern Connecticut, uh, you know, given you know, the real estate bubble that we're in right now, uh, you know, there's the, the inventory is short, but there are a lot of uh, less expensive homes that could be deemed affordable and, and take, uh, take into uh, consideration the amount of affordable housing that people have. And, and there can be programs developed to try to get people into those homes. And, and I think 
you know, that's as important as changing and altering zoning regulations from the state to the towns. I think the frustration is that it is so piecemeal that you have uh, some towns maybe working on this, but other towns, you know, they just won't budge. They don't want to see this type of development in, in their in their town. Or And it's just frustrating, I think, when we hear about how so many people in our state need a place to live, Senator Formica. It shouldn't be just, a, you know, your town of East Lyme or others uh, making an effort. Well, and I guess, that, you know, that's the conversation that we have to have. And, and how do we do that? And, and, you know, can the state force feed it? Or is it something that, uh, you know, we can get together and, and have conversations about? I know, um, you know, I know it's something we have to talk about. And hopefully that's, you know, part of the conversation. It's been a big part of the conversation this legislative session, that's for sure. Well, I've appreciated the time you've given us today, State Senate Republican Leader Pro Tem Paul Formica, representing the 20th District. Thank you for coming on the show. We'd love to talk with you again in the future. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I wish you all a wonderful afternoon. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from Hearst, Connecticut's politics reporter, reporter, Julia Bergman, again, that legislative session ending in just a couple of weeks uh, about more of the bills that may move forward before that deadline. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from the second highest ranking Republican in the state Senate, Senator Paul Formica. For more context, joining us now on Zoom, Julia Bergman, politics reporter for Hearst, Connecticut. Julia, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Lucy. So we, we hit uh, several things. I wanted to, to hear your take on, on the senator's comments. Let's start with uh, this indictment of Senator Dennis Bradley. I asked him to talk about the program that the, that um, Bradley is alleged to have uh, tried to defraud. And I'm wondering if you can respond to what you heard. I think uh, many senators, both Republicans and Democrats, are reluctant to say too much at this point. Um, Given, you know, we just have charges, we don't have any kind of guilty verdict at this point. So I think, uh, you know, the senator was obviously playing it cautiously uh, as to be expected, you know, waiting for more details to unfold. Uh, Senator Bradley just appeared in court for the first time yesterday afternoon. Um, and obviously it was business as usual uh, in the in the Capitol. So the senator was obviously focused on that. So I think waiting for more details is the stance that most uh, lawmakers are taking at this point. Uh, can you walk us through the debate that happened last night? Was it shorter than usual when we think about how the state is now uh, moving forward uh, once uh, the governor signs in and it gets approval from the federal government, of course, on online gambling and sports betting, Julia? Yeah, I think in some ways it was an anticlimactic ending. I mean, this has been debated for years or talked about for years. And in the end, it was a relatively short debate on the floor of the Senate last night before they voted to uh, approve the measure. You know, the, as the senator mentioned, the um, Lamont administration had to step in at, at various points and negotiations, negotiations broke down at various points. So in the end, it was um, somewhat easy to pass after after all that had happened. Uh, so to walk us through, because I'd asked uh, the, uh, the senator about the timeline of how soon sports betting uh, will be allowed in Connecticut. What can you tell us, Julia? 
Yeah, I think it's going to take a little while to get set up. I think it's there's there's hope that by the time the uh, NFL will be playing in the fall, that things will be in place by then. But uh, definitely a lot a lot of work to do on the revenue side. I think the projection is uh, twenty eight million in this fiscal year. That's starting July first, so a lot of money that could be on the table. But uh, certainly a lot of details still to be worked out. It is interesting when we think about revenue uh, as being one of the factors, of course, and protecting jobs and then the southeastern corner, as lawmakers have stated. But when we think about another revenue generator that the governor put in his budget, and that is legalizing cannabis. Where does that stand? So they're still working on a deal right now. Um, There's talk potentially of... um, Maybe some kind of longer debate happening on the Saturday before the session ends, uh, June 9th. That's a possibility. There's always, um, you know, traditionally legislators coming for a long day that Saturday before. Um, so that could definitely happen. You know, you and, and the senator were talking a lot about these uh, racial inequities that have list, uh, existed for a very long time. And that's definitely part of the cannabis, legalizing cannabis debate as well. There's progressive Democrats who believe that there needs to be more equity provisions in the bill and make sure that those are really clear um, so that those who were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, um, you know, get a fair share going forward and how this, um, you know, retail cannabis market would play out in Connecticut. I want to talk more about uh, the budget, uh, the deal that's potentially happening behind closed doors, right, between the Democratic legislative leaders and the governor. Uh, one bone of contention, of course, uh, the progressive, uh, some progressive lawmakers seem wanting to shift uh, that tax burden away from the middle class. Let's and some proposals out to hike um, some taxes on the wealthy. I mean, where does that stand? And do you think that you know Senator Formica thinks that with the governor Lamont not being supportive of that, that it won't be happening this year, potentially. What are you hearing? Yeah, I think there's a lot more potentially agreement between um, or areas of agreement between the Lamont administration and the Republicans on some of these issues in the state state budget. The Governor Lamont has been very, has drawn a very hard line about not wanting to increase uh, taxes on the wealthy. He said there's, you know, we're flush in federal cash from COVID relief money. Uh, The rainy day, you know, fund is is at an all-time high. Um, so I think Lamont is going to be very hard-pressed to do any kind of large-scale tax increases on wealthy residents. Um, but again, this is also part of, of the debate of the long, long-standing systemic inequities. Um, and, you know, there are members of Lamont's own party who believe that this now is the opportunity to really address these. You know, Connecticut is in a very good fiscal position, so it's going to take more than the federal funding you know, the state's got to pony up more money to, to deal with this. So I think it's um, it's definitely going to be a very, very interesting debate to watch in the coming weeks. And I should say a couple of those income tax surcharge proposals on the wealthy, some of that revenue could pay for earned income tax credits, help families who have been struggling, especially in this pandemic. We know for the wealthy, you know, they've continued to make money during the pandemic. It's been a, you know, the stock market has been going well. And it's just interesting to see how this debate continues, uh, uh, Julia, in these next couple of weeks, if a budget deal will be agreed upon before June 9th. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the um, there's an activist um, group called Recovery for All that has really been pushing this angle and pushing legislators to finally, you know, move um, on this. They um, put out a report that included um, how much money Connecticut's billionaires made over the, the pandemic using uh, data or a list from uh, Forbes that Forbes updates every day uh, called the Real-Time Billionaires List. And 
it showed that Connecticut billionaires gained more than $12 billion during the pandemic. Um, like you said, a lot of that tied to stock portfolios and, and real estate investments. And so they're arguing, you know, this is a perfect example of, you know, let's use this money and let's invest it, you know, at, sorry, tax, you know, tax these people and use the money to, to make a more equitable system here in Connecticut. We just have a couple of minutes left, Julia. We just got a tweet, um, someone writing rules against multifamily housing are just closeted racism in Connecticut. We spent some time talking about these zoning reform bills, Senator Formica, um, as well as many members of his party saying that, you know, there should no, not be a state mandate uh, to force towns to um, permit particular development. This has been a contentious issue, this legislative session. Uh, what will be happening in terms of some of these bills moving forward, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for many uh, activists and supporters of, you know, strengthening uh, zoning laws here in Connecticut, they were pretty upset about the bill that came out of the, the weakened bill, as they're calling it, that came out of the House and now goes to the Senate. Um, I think there's a real debate over um, or concern over local control and giving away local control. But, um, you know, I think activists are pretty clear that this, you know, who are behind this legislation, that it does, that local municipalities do will still have a lot of control and then it just basically kind of sets up barometers so that they don't, um, so that they actually follow through on these plans to make more affordable uh, housing in their, in their municipalities. I mentioned that legislative deadline coming up uh, June 9th before the session ends. Uh, anything that we're missing that you want to talk about, Julia? No, I think we, we covered it all. It's going to be an interesting uh, couple of weeks, definitely for sure. And um Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank Julia Bergman for joining us. She's the politics reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. Julia, thank you. Thanks so much, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer with help from Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.